yes, yes, yes. Welcome to Mont Icons. In this episode, we interview Spider Death, a Melbourne-based visual artist, tattooist, and a former member of various punk bands. Welcome, Spider. Hey, how you doing? Uh, what have you been up to? Fuck, I, I just got out of lockdown as if as we all have. I've just been getting slammed at work, man. Mm. Working heaps. I've really missed it. I really enjoy not being stuck at home cutting fucking records over <laughs> and over. It's like dubbing tapes, but it's like I've got to heat these things up to 40 degrees and I'm just sweating my fucking ass off. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be so upset about it, but it just, it's supposed to be like this zen thing, but there's nothing zen about it. <laughs> like, yeah. What, yeah. What making, cutting records is supposed to be. Like a zen that's why, I, that's why I bought this record press to, to start with because tattooing is so stressful. And I thought I could do this at, at home and put out my band's records and stuff. But it isn't. It's like so many so many variables constantly. And I'm putting out this Enzyme record at the moment. And they're good friends, but they're fucking ball breakers, man. <laughs> Can you maybe give a, back, a bit of background on Winter Garden? Oh, uh, yeah. Just for people who haven't heard of yeah, it. Yeah, sure. It's, How um, did you start it? Like worked the whole story yeah um it was actually will canning he he wrote to me once and said do you know a place that can press 50 records and i said no nah. but then i thought about it i thought oh, i know this guy that cuts records and i thought fuck that's something i always want to do like i've always released records and put out fanzines and stuff but to go that extra mile and actually make the product yourself would be wild and so i can so I bought a record lathe and I had to study it for years because it's such ancient history. I had to go to libraries and stuff. And um, I was lucky to buy one and have a, bit of, have a bit of help from this guy in Perth that sort of coached me along the way. And since then, I've put out about 20 records of just local bands, or some overseas guys, but mostly, most of the time it's bands that people don't really know about. But it's gotten to the stage where I can't keep up with, like the product like i'll put out a hundred records now and it'll sell out in half an hour and it's kind of like it reminds me of like i work on this thing for months months and it's over in like 10 minutes you know but i'm pretty grateful for it i like what's what's the point of records like why why are records like a big thing in your in your scene and why do people still buy records like that's a good question that's a really good question I think it's more of a collectible thing, like nostalgia. But it's always been tied to to, to that the kind of punk yeah. DIY thing from the get-go. What's that about? I think it, there's a bit of record collecting, like money, like people collect shit. Like people like we saw outside, all those kids lining up to buy fucking sneakers. Mm. It's like that shit. You know, it's like an obsessive thing, like fanatical, like I must have everything sort of thing. And it also... I guess the purists love hearing things on records because it's going to sound better and all that shit, you know? I think there's also uh, the reason that I like Winter Garden. There's a, this feeling of the physicality of, of the object that, yeah. is, that is disappearing. Like the only real physical objects that we really interact with are our phones now and, and, and having like uh, music kind of come to you not filtered through like a major company or whatever, like yeah. being able to directly be like able to pick up a record that I know spite. I mean, can you describe the process that you go to make these things? Because I think that, that yeah. gives a pretty good picture of like yeah. why it is kind of a special kind of item. Yeah, it's okay. So I, I get a, I get the band to send me this, the tracks on a CD because I don't have a computer. So I still have a fucking like old CD player. So I run this CD through, player through a record lathe. And a record lathe is, imagine a record player, but in reverse. And instead of it picking up music, it has a a needle that cuts. And this sort of cuts music into discs of plastic. And I get these plastic discs discs made in France and shipped over. And imagine like, you know, when you used to go to bars and you'd see like a piano that plays itself and it has little dots in it. It's kind of like it's picking. So the needle sort of puts in little dots of music into this piece of plastic. And it happens all in real time. And there's, I mean, I have to heat them up and cover them with lubrication. But it sort of takes forever. And sometimes, like, when I was making the low-life records, the center holes on all the the blank records are always too small. So I have to use a scalpel to sort of drill them out. 
I fucking bled on on like five of these low life records. I don't know where they are now. Some poor bastard has all these brown fucking records because I thought I sent them to Christian as a bit of a joke, but he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. So, and that's what makes like really rare items rare, right? Those quirks and it's the imperfections. It's yeah. Same with Nikes, like imperfect Nikes are the ones that go for like ridiculous amounts of money, and it's the same with records, eh? Like it's the ones that are a bit fucked or they've got a bit of a story behind them or some fucking blood or yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, what was the first? artist or musician that you were obsessed by and wanted to collect all their fucking records because i know for me when i was young i loved music and having a record was like the biggest physical thing i could own of that artist and like i could hold and like leaf through or, or whatever i remember that um isaac Isaac Hayes, the the Black Moses record, and it had this amazing fold out like crucifix, and he's like Jesus on the in his beautiful robe, and I just thought it was the fucking coolest thing in the world. But who who was that for you? It was Gizm, hundred percent. Because I remember like I was you know it was nineteen ninety eight, and I just heard this band, but there was just such a dark mystery about it that no one knew much about it, and the people that did know about it thought it was like horrific like this guy Sekevi Yokohama the singer he would just like he's he was kind of wired in like he was obsessed with war and uh destruction and it was just like I read a review last night of this record saying it was imagine being living in a world full of darkness you know and I was like that's exactly what Gizm was like it was like a soundtrack to an apocalypse and when I heard this band I this was pre-internet, and you couldn't really find out much about it. You just had to ask other old-timer punks, like, do you know about this band? And there was always these weird bootlegs going around, but this guy, Sekevi, used to, like, beat up people that bootlegged his records. He stabbed someone for selling bootleg records, and, you know, he used to poison the drinking water at his shows and shit like this. This is like, it made fucking, like... Gigi Allen looked like Mother Superior, you know, like <laughs> like all this crazy shit. And I became so obsessed with it. Even like all the imagery and stuff, it wasn't just the music. It was like these crazy fucking drawings and like um, collages and stuff. And yeah, I was fucking obsessed with it. I remember going to sleep just thinking about it constantly, you know. I really want to talk to you, DX, about the pre-internet world of underground music like... Um uh, I interviewed Stephen O'Malley about it and he describes it like it it became this kind of strange mythical world that like you had to write to people across the world and, and they would write back and you never fully knew anything. It was kind of like they, this con- construct, like this fantasy world that everyone was a part of because they never saw each other. They just wrote to each other and sent shit to each other. And well, I know you, were, you actually, were involved in that. That's actually how me and Spider first became mates was yeah. I found a zine that he did at a shop in Sydney and I got it home and I was just like, and, and it was, it, I didn't know what your inspirations or motivations were, but it was my first exposure to like kind of evil side of crust, you know, this yeah. kind of that scary side of like punk. And I, that, and I wrote you a letter yeah. and we started corresponding like back and forth. So whenever I saw spider at shows, like we'd, we'd start talking and we were from like, different areas of, of punk definitely i was definitely from the more kind of the sober um disciplined hardcore mentality and um but we went to the same shows because that's what punk was in sydney like you'd, you'd always just go watch bands that you'd, you'd have like um like street punk bands playing with like chaos punk bands playing with straight edge bands it was just yeah, the way that it worked and we were attracted to definitely mutually attracted to kind of mixing with as many different people as possible and we were having like a kind of discussion that i couldn't have elsewhere like with other punks so that was definitely um an illustrative um example of what you're talking about we we we, we we've been mates ever since but spider was also one of the first people that introduced mediacism and it wasn't even directly it was just through his fascination like mm. and and i just that 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 kind of myth building that you were doing um yeah. was really like effective you know you're you're one of the early champions of this band and i heard i heard it so out of nowhere 
and it ter- it terrified me. Oh yeah, it's yeah. fucking scary. Yeah, like there's even rumors of Sakevi trying to shoot down a plane. Like there's always these stories that get snowballed, and who knows? He might have just had a slingshot and he was shooting a bird. But like, you know, all these folklore sort of stories. Well, that's the beauty of of that time is that there was like all this mystique and like storytelling and rumor and whispers, but. Now you don't have that because everyone's just got an Instagram profile and you could just message them or watch them, like, having coffee or, like, drinking a beer or, you know, like, living their normal daily lives. Whereas in back then you could... These artists really constructed this mythology. It's kind of why I think that Gizm is going to have this enormous resurgence because no matter how heavily documented they are, and, he's you know, Sakevi just put out a book... Um, detestation's about to get reissued on relapse. Like yeah. they will always have this like impenetrable core that just can't really translate into the modern life. It'll always just seem like insanity and, and darkness. And the people that know like a lot of the strong intel are Japanese and they're not gonna talk to you about it. Out of respect. Whoa. Yeah. Like they're not gonna so sick. like Japanese people like of that era won't really divulge information about any of that. Not only Gizm, yeah. but other bands. I found that when I went to Japan and um, was retracing Yukio Mishima's kind of footsteps and no one really wanted to talk about him. Yeah. Even, even like, fans would be, would be really awkward and, and just not want to divulge too much. Because everything, uh, as a Westerner, that they say or do is a reflection on their whole society. Right. In, even, even in, like, the smallest interactions, they feel like they're suddenly representing their whole country in in this small exchange yeah i found the same thing when talking about mishima um either people would be really quick to point out kind of the the right-wing affiliation and all Mm. the stuff about him that 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 kind of horrifies and frightens people like they would point that out straight away and establish the conversation like that you know and 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 or they just would pretend to have never heard of him which was like way more fascinating because it's not true. I, I met a guy studying literature, contemporary Japanese literature, and he like looked me in the eyes and he said, "I've never heard of Yukio Mishima." And, wow. Yeah, and, and, and but I think yeah, I think it ties into what you're saying. I think also he's he's frightening as well. Like you know, um, some of the associations that people have with him, uh, like so so horrifying for them that 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 they just don't want to talk about it. Yeah. But yeah. it, um, I was talking to very, very left-wing punks, like kind of thing, and I think their approach was more to um, deny everything really? <laughs> and, and forget, like what? kind of, um, which which is, is is definitely a historic method that every culture tries to do. Yeah. Like we try and wash away the the, the evil past. Just I, just going back to that that thing we were talking about because I don't want I don't I really am fascinated by it. Do you do you, either of you have any like weird instances where you would like writing to someone and then you met them and they were like completely fucking weird or different or strange or they just sucked in real life? But so, they were like so many times, so many times, and it was it was way stranger than when you kind of um, meet a friend online and meet him in the real world. Like it was way stranger when you've had this intimacy of getting a letter that's handwritten. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that happened to me when I met Frank from Atrocious Madness. We used to write, we wrote to each other for years and years and then they came out here and um, like 10 years later and there was there was some guy just selling records like on the street and I went, oh, like, went and check it out and I saw this weird punk standing there. He was kind of just standing there like talking to someone and I was like, hey, buddy, do you want to get out of the way? And I, and I was like, are you Frank? He's like, yeah, man. I'm like, oh, fuck, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I don't think I've met anyone that I've really been that upset about meeting them and i don't think i've ever built anyone up that too much in my mind to be like i can't wait like i got like a like a hard on to meet this person i don't know not that i can think of really what about you dan yeah definitely um what's the standout the standout is douglas uh, surely nah i would say like the the standouts are the other stories of the people that like frighten you like you've like written letters with them and completely misread like the level of their like kind of psychopath obsessive kind of behavior and you kind of realize oh like and that's one thing about kind of punk that that like we 
we can kind of relate to and that you'd be able to understand this that like for so many people that's like you shake like society and these people fall to the bottom right mm. they, and and sometimes that's where they end up like in punk yeah. and and you and you and you like that issue of like damaged mental health like you're exposed to it a lot if you're going to a lot of shows and like that whole world is full of that kind of thing yeah and then occasionally there's that person that just won't let you go and sometimes i've had letters like that when i was younger and gone to meet people and just been like oh i was on another level i thought we're taking trading tapes here but like now suddenly we're like thelma and louise or something like (laughs) Whoa. whoa that's dark but do you, do you, do you, what's your, I'd like to hear, like, if you've ever met a Sakevi obsessive on your level and what that interaction was like. Let's see. I don't know if I have, to be honest. I, I definitely I, haven't. I, I don't know if I have. I mean, I know a lot of people have dabbled with it, but um, nothing that extreme. I, I have written to him, or I think I've written to him via email recently. I was going to send him a painting, but... Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I was gonna say. I was gonna ask you, Mahmoud. Like, have you ever been writing to people and they think they're gonna meet this big gangster guy, and then they meet me? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, you, man. Fuck you. No. Do you ever get like some crazy fans and like? Um. Not really, man. No. I've no. Not really. I just. I get like some fucking flops messaging me every now and again, being like. Was some like one of like, you guys? Yeah, one one of them. No, one of them's just like asking all these like weird questions, and then um, like like being mad supportive and being like, "I love what you're doing," you know, for mental health. And then they'll just like send you a really abusive message and be like, "Why the fuck did you not reply?" And you fucking dog, brah. And it's like, bro, fuck. I don't know. I don't care about shit like that. But I, I don't really have people yeah, writing I- to me. I'm trying to think if I've ever written to someone and then met I, I i was a big fan of doing this but with in in other fields like meeting filmmakers that i really like meeting um musicians that i that i like or artists in melbourne that i like and just catching up with them I'm trying to think um amiel was was one that i wrote to who i was because he was he was this kind of mythic mysterious figure in in australian cinema like he was known as like yeah this this odd odd character that um you know was sleeping in a warehouse and just making like these insane art house films and like yeah i was really inspired to 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 see to speak to him and just be like who is this guy throwing horses out of a helicopter you know and sleeping in a caravan and filming it like what the fuck like who's who is this maniac but then yeah, and making films with like ex-prisoners and the- like theater shows and filming theater, Shakespearean theater shows of ex-cons like coming out trying to reintegrate. Like just yeah, I was pretty. Um, but yeah, people are always like I feel like in, in some ways not not in Amia not not to say this about Amia, but most people you meet they kind of never live up to your imagination. Eh? They never they because you you're con- you've con- you've made this construct in your head that's can never be fulfilled because it's your own fantasy yeah that's true well that's kind of how we met like we, we met quite quite oddly like mm. as two people meet um brought together by spider well yours is an interesting one because you don't have an online presence so yeah, like true. meeting you is kind of that all in that in that realm in that old school sense where people have to email you <laughs> <laughs> and fucking meet up with you and and it's got that it's got that same sort of uh energy where you're like yeah, yeah. So that was cool. I want to talk a little bit a, bit a bit more about um your personal kind of experience with discovering gism and and, and obviously like absorbing their influence into your life. Um yeah. so can you kind of paint a little picture about where you were living at the time and maybe um if, describe your appearance? <laughs> oh yeah, okay. <laughs> um yeah, I was I just moved back from America. Um we we grew up in America for part of my childhood in San Francisco because my dad helped write, um, what is it, coding for the internet? Anyway, so I was, like, exposed to a lot of bands over there. Anyway, so we moved back and I was 18, 1998, and I was living in Newtown in Sydney 
and I had like fucking like half white and half black kind of hair. And I used to spike it up with PVA glue because it's curly. Like, That's cool. Like full on like Rapunzel shit. It was, no, it was hard to work with, man. <laughs> so I used to have PVA glue, but after a while, it sort of just turned into dreadlocks because I never washed it out. That's not a look. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think at the time, like, I was doing, like, a lot of speed and I used to make my own homebrew cider and, like, it made me so sick, <laughs> but it was, like, so cheap. I think I really harnessed Gizm when I got sober, though, because when I got sober, I was a real dry drunk. I was t- talking about this just before mm. and I would go to shows kind of itching for it to kick off and i sort of wanted to bring violence back to shows and i thought it was this really cool thing yeah me and christina were talking yesterday and she said uh you bashed one of her friends because he was wearing a rancid t-shirt i don't i don't remember that i have no comment on that yeah (laughs) (laughs) and i was like who the fuck's rancid like what what is rancid and why did he hate it so much that definitely makes the story that much better that you don't know who Rancid is. But um, I reckon there'd have to be more to that. These, I don't know. <laughs> these kinds of spurious allegations. <laughs> yeah. um, do you want to uh, do you want to talk about um, that that experience of like harnessing Gizm to get sober a bit? Because I'd like to stick yeah. on that just mm. for a second. Yeah. So um, I used to go to the gym a lot, and you know I was doing odd jobs here and there. But I had this band at the time. And when I performed, I wanted it to be like, even though the music was nothing like Gizm, I kind of liked this kind of fear that he had in the audience. And so, you know, I used to like get into the crowd and beat people up and do all that shit. But then I had this idea to get it more interactive. I used to get a $10 note and sticky tape it to my forehead. And I used to try to get people to come on stage and like beat me down to try to take it. It didn't really catch on until, like, the third show. But by the end of it, man, I remember this girl got on stage with a fucking Nokia phone, those bricks, and she was just beating me with it. And (laughs) there was blood everywhere. And um, it's sort of like, at the time I thought, you know, it was kind of like this great way to make punk really cool and exclusive because only the true fans would come. But the true fans just turned into, like, these fucking big, like knucklehead footy players that just want to beat up this little punk guy <laughs> like it kind of backfired kind of like the people i don't want it shows <laughs> these macho guys but um that's part of my guinness harnessing power i think <laughs> definitely what was the scene like back then just describe that a little bit because i i'm an outsider to this world but like what yeah what what was the vibe like in, in australia and then maybe overseas. How how was it different and unique? Um, how were the fans weird and different in in, a, in an Australian sense? I feel like it wasn't as uniformed as it is now. I don't. It wasn't as categorised, obviously. And I think people you can tell by the patches. Someone had, like you know everyone has a certain dress sense now. And what does that mean? Like the the patches? Because that that was a bit of a thing back in the nineties and or yeah. even back in the eighties and shit. Like sort of like. So people would wear jackets and put patches. And studs and stuff and, and jackets, yeah. But it's sort of like, I was always strong in Melbourne, the chain punk. It was always very heavy, full metal jacket. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Sydney, it, it was a little bit, but not really. What does that come from? Like, what's that about? It, came, it comes from, like, punk from, like, back in, like, 77 in the UK. I feel like punks used to wear dog collars and stuff and just to keep the cops off their back, just to look more menacing, you know. That'd also be a big influence of biker culture and the kind of leather jackets and, and, and patches and stuff, and the style would definitely have come out of, yeah, a cross yeah. between kind but, of, like, yeah, S&M yeah, kind S&M. of motif and then, like, bikers and stuff. Yeah. Like, the, I think it was basically about um, menace, yeah. looking, looking as if you crawled out from under a bridge, and in many cases people crawled out from under bridges why why did you want to look like that spider that's a great question (laughs) what motivated you to put glue like like with me and my boys we want to wear versace and like gold gold watches and i know now you you do love you've got a versace bag and your style's changed up so why did you want to look like you crawled from a bridge i guess you want to go to the most extreme side of one subculture as you can embrace every single ounce that it has and i think when you think about it like the punks when they started 
the only kind of like weird subcultures that were around were bikies and S&M stuff. So they took a bit from both. Right. And then, like, if that's all you got, like, whatever's accessible at the time. And, yeah, I use glue and shit in my hair because it's, you know, that's what it, there was no Versace then. But why did you want to go to the extreme end of a subculture? Because you kind of want to live it, embrace everything. I mean, I had nothing else to really... You have nothing else really to look forward to, you know. I couldn't get a job. Like, I already had tattoos at that stage and I was super young. And, like, no one would employ me. And I sort of finished school in America and it was kind of like this weird sort of... Couldn't really prove it, though, because we never had tax file numbers over there. We are kind of illegal aliens, but we weren't. It's kind of complicated, but, mm. you know, there's part of my life that's kind of blank on paper. Mm. Same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like a, a, a really uh, important part of my life. I, I, and, and willfully, I think, like, punk does that. Like, you willfully try and evade as much paper as possible. Oh, like, yeah. it's like being a, an absence in the world is part of, like, the ethos of it. Like, you, like you don't want anyone to know where you are, who you are, who you hang out with. Like, yeah. And that, that comes from, like, obviously the long time um, kind of rub against, like, other kind of, like, as, like I was saying, you shake society, the people down the bottom are generally the ones that don't want people to know where they are you know yeah and um you also create fake names like and fake identities and you make sure that everyone knows them yeah um like spider yeah exactly 100 percent. yeah why yeah. do you call yourself spider oh it was a nickname given to me because of this tattoo on my elbow because oh. and like you don't think of it now much it's a spider with an elbow like who gives a fuck but back then, in like the late nineties, you would never see a kid that young with a with a tattoo. Like it was kind of weird. Everyone's like, "Well, like you're eighteen, you got like a bunch of tattoos on your forearm. Like, what are you doing?" That that's that's in, that's worth highlighting because it was the same in criminal culture where when I was growing up, only like the baddest motherfuckers had tattoos. Yeah, and then people that had like hand tattoos, they were like the fucking yeah, real have... bad. Like yeah, so. Um, what was your experience of tattoo culture like? And when you got that tattoo, how did people around you behave and, and act? My parents weren't happy, obviously. Mm. But um, And I couldn't get a job. I think I just ended up working in a, I worked as a screen printer for a long time in a factory. Tattoo culture was so different then, you know, especially in Sydney. Um, it was very controlled. And, and at the intersection of bikey culture again, yeah, like yeah. bikey culture really um, capitalised off the um, the tattoo thing. Yeah, you know, like you couldn't, uh, and like like you're saying about getting your hand tattoo, they they wouldn't do that there. Like there was a lot of rules, and you couldn't get certain stuff. Tell me, tell us a bit about those rules. Because well, you, you couldn't get your hands or your face tattooed back then because it was the Queen's property. Whoa. And, yeah, and or and if and it, there was other rules like if these guys found out someone was tattooing it in their house, they'd just go there and like break his hands. Like she, she liked that. Whereas everyone in Melbourne, like most people, tattoo out of their houses, you know. And I've always wondered why there hasn't been a lot of that sort of stuff in Melbourne. Like, do you know why? Like there was never a big tattoo bikey sort of thing here. I, I was I was speculating on that when I first moved here. And yeah. do you remember? When we were younger, do you remember um, when like Blue Murder and shit was on television, yeah. like up in up in Sydney? But do you remember that Victorian police had the worst reputation? Like For in, sure. where, where I was from in Wollongong, like people would talk about like how deadly it was t- in Mel- in Melbourne. Yeah. So that's one thing that I kind of speculated on. That w- was. Yeah, I remember coming to a protest down here in like '99. And Kate and Bart were warning me about Victorian police and, like, how they're, like, the worst in the world and stuff. Right. But um, I ended up... They were fucking scary back then. Like, they were straight up fucking scary. Like, yeah. Even, I mean, just the amount of shootings that were going on, like, they, they went on... It's it's well documented that more more shooting police shootings happened in Victoria in the early 90s than every other state combined so yeah that i think that that reputation kind of seeped into where we were living and i mean i lived all over australia when i was younger but 
I still like by the time I got to Wollongong, that was like something that you just absorbed like yeah. through the air, like people were talking about. So I think that might be one, one thing that I'd speculate. But they on. Defi- bikies definitely were running tattooed. Oh yeah, Sin- like, they had a str- they, they had a stranglehold on them, and there was a period where. You know, you just can't open up a tattoo shop in certain areas. You just can't unless you you kick up to someone. You still, I mean, I don't know what it's like now. Yeah, but I, I'm ta- I have no idea. There, yeah, I don't know what it's like now. But if I was to take an educated guess, I would say that there's a, there's a, there's a strong link there. Maybe sure. it was just more visible in Sydney because so many shops were just getting burnt down. So well, yeah. more people were kind of just trying them out, you know? Yeah, yeah, and there were there's little telltale signs like, you know, certain tattoo shops will have specific colours to kind of signal oh, really? to other to other people that they're affiliated with this club, um, or they'll use the same font. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, there, there's a strong strong link there. But what did you, it must have been fucking scary being a tattooist back then. Like the people coming in to get tattooed and the culture, like all those old head tattooists, uh, kind of they were they were all a bit fu- fucked up and crooked and doing shit on the side as well. Yeah, a lot of them are on like amphetamines all the time, especially the guys in the cross. I remember I was talking to one of the guys that used to work the cross. He still does. Last time I was up there, and he said he used to start at midday and finish at four in the morning. And then just go to the pub for a couple of hours, sleep out the back of the shop, and then start again. Mm. But yeah, what was I going to say? Yeah, it was. Um, I remember when I first started getting tattooed in these shops, and um, the guy that was tattooing me, his boss, would just roll in and say, "There's five club members coming in after this. You've got to stay back and tattoo all of them, and it's going to be for nothing. And like, you just don't have a say in it. Like, cancel your fucking day, cancel your mm. night, and it's just like." You know, you have to do it. When did you get into it? Um, I started getting, I started getting tattooed when I was eighteen, and I got a few, but I really started pumping it out when I was about twenty-three. And what year are we we in here? Early two thousand. Yeah. Yeah, like two thousand two or something. And that's when I started going in every week. And if I wasn't getting tattooed, I'd just sort of hang out and just sort of absorb it. And I became really good friends with the shop in Newtown. And all the guys there, you know. Mm. There must have been some red hot shit. You can tell us that that went down. Oh, don't, was, don't mention names. No, no. I remember. I remember the boss of that shop used to just ride into the shop on his motorbike. Into the shop, yeah, ride in and just like start revving it up. And like if people are getting tattooed. Uh, I remember there was a one one guy tattooing there. This isn't a joke. And. You know, he was tattooing this girl in the corner while her friend was sitting behind him watching. He was tattooing, like, her lower back. You could see the handle of a sticking out of the back of his pants. That's what I was going to say. Like, I'd heard stories of people on the counters in tattoo shops in Sydney. Like, it was a pretty common thing, especially in the early 2000s, for sure. Yeah, there was a lot of... of I mean, you go to the bathroom and you could see that there was a wall patched up with, like, this weird bit of plywood kind of loosely screwed on there. And behind that plywood, you know it's, like, behind their hair, like yeah. like little hidey holes and stuff. Yeah, because there was red-hot shit happening in some of those tattoo shops, like cops getting firebombed and all sorts of crazy mad shit was going down back in the day. Well, I remember that. St- well, I remember that, if I can touch on that story. <laughs> I remember this, this uh, paddy wagon, like, just broke down out the front of the tattoo shop. So this guy went to the police station and said, you've got to move this paddy wagon, like, because everyone's going to think I'm a snitch. And they said, oh, we can't, it's broken down. And he said, well, I'm, I'm just going to torture it. And they said, okay. And there's footage of him and he goes back yeah. with a, a, a can of caro and just lights the fucking thing on fire. Yeah. But the funny thing was a couple of years later there was a tattoo expo and this, the, his shop, like, had a booth at the tattoo expo and their shirts were the fucking car on fire. <laughs> What? Like they were just cashing in on it. It was kind of sick. That's sick. Yeah. That's real yeah. sick. Yeah, it was cool. I want one of those yeah, fucking I, I T-shirts. I, I wasn't yeah. there. I was just told about it. I saw a photo of it. It was, it was sick. That's sick. But yeah, I mean, that's that's the real thing. Like, if you if you run if you're involved in that world and there's a cop car outside your your shop and so and you can't explain why it's there. Yeah, people are going to start asking. And the thing with that sort of shit is. They're never going to ask you directly. They're just going to assume. Yeah. Like, they're going to assume that you're, 
You know, it's like a, it's what are the odds it's going to break down in front of a fucking tattoo shop? I feel like it was just bait. Oh, the whole for time. sure, for sure. They're probably after him for something and putting pressure on him and yeah. wanting him to give him information for something. And yeah, they're, they're fucking. They do that sort of sneaky shit all the time, and especially back then, we're talking. Yeah, cops would do all sorts of fucking slippery fucking piglet shit. (laughs) Yeah, I've been hit with a phone book a few times. I wonder if they still do that. It's very old school. Yeah. Like, uh, they they strip you naked and beat you with the yellow pages? Because they don't have yellow pages anymore. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder what they use. (laughs) I've heard stories from Western Sydney in the early 2000s of people getting, like, kidnapped by dogs who had deals with police. Like, so these informants who had deals with police would go and do kidnappings for them and shit. So it's not like the cops doing it directly. It's like they've got these snitches on the... Yeah, they were doing all sorts of (coughs) mad shit back then. But, yeah. But, yeah, so then you... you, At what point do you realise, I want to make a life out of tattooing people? Like, how does that happen? I wanted to do it for a long time, but I sort of had to keep asking these people for about a year and then when it came around the guy that was tattooing me for free all the time said look i'm gonna open a shop but my boss said i can only open a shop if i leave sydney for a year there was a old rule if you leave your shop that you're working in sydney you can't work in sydney for a year and then so he left and when he came back he opened up a shop and he took me on and it was great and then the rest is history, you know? And then, I mean, it took years to actually figure out what the fuck I was doing, though. But you were always drawing. Like, yeah. I remember you had such a distinctive style. Um, going back to the first um, letters that you'd send me and stuff. Um, and I'd like to hear a little bit about, like, kind of your visual references back there because oh, yeah. they, they've definitely carried through the whole time. So you had a pretty, like, solid... Aesthetic and, sense and, quite. And how important was that for the world that you were in? Like, did, did all these tattoo artists back then have to have, like, their own edge and their own style? Because now a lot of it just looks the same to me, to be honest. But you, but back then, like, each artist had, like, a very distinctive, like, fucking style. Um, I don't know where to start, I guess. Um, back when I first started drawing... Um, and I was involved, like, just getting into punk music. I was obsessed with Nick Blinker, you know, and I still am. I just recently bought his book. And I think it was just I was drawn to the obsessiveness of the strokes on the paper and you could tell, like, it was just he would just sit there for fucking days. And I'm just some, I mean, I've always been obsessed with someone that's so fanatical about anything, even if it's fucking, like, fanatical about a football team or something i'm so i've always been so, sort of drawn to anyone that's obsessive so much that it's deteriorating their health yeah can you like, talk a little bit give like a background into nick blinko because um, yeah yeah so nick, i think that would help to kind of paint the picture more nick blinko uh had a band called rudimentary peanut and he, it, they they started in i think it was like the early 80s they were on crass records it was like three chord sort of punk rock but it was pretty sort of it was very goth and he used to just scream and the songs were so simple and they sort of just went on and on but a lot of the themes of the songs were about lovecraft and shit like that and it was just it was a punk band but it was kind of kind of left wing like it was just it wasn't really about politics per se it was a lot of a lot about human condition but it wasn't stuff about smashing up maccas or anything something about that drew it to me because it was very naive as well and it wasn't like this studded jacket thing that everyone was sort of grown to love. It was really interesting. I think I've always been drawn... The thing that drew me to him was his artwork. And um, Was there a particular artwork? And what, what did that look like? I would say it was probably the, the fold-out poster of Death Church. I showed it to you at my house that time. Mm. Um, it's just this monolithic fucking six-panel LP thingamajig. It would have taken him you know, fucking ages to make. He talks about a little bit in Primal Screamer. The, like, he wrote this autobiography in the sense that he's he was his psychiatrist in diary notes. Like, the whole thing's kind of cooked. Yeah. It's very cool. Have you read it? No. Oh, I'll lend it to you. I'd love to read it. Yeah, it, was, it came out in, like, 98. So he wrote this book about, you know, he pretended he's a psychiatrist analysing himself. It's kind of very jagged, but he talks about how... 
he he used to make artwork in his basement surrounded by all these televisions that didn't work, but he'd plug them on for the white noise for inspiration. So different tones of white noise, and that's how he sort of came out with ways to write songs. It's pretty it's pretty intense. It's a fucking mm. good idea. He also struggled with mental health. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, he did. I'm not really sure what his what he's been diagnosed as. Because it was such a... Um, I always felt that was such a key part of rudimentary pain. I was like this this feeling of like this oversensitive person like, yeah. suffering for, for all of the ills. Like he, he, he really... Um, he really like howled in anguish, you know. Yeah, and it was it was def- it was definitely different to a lot of those kind of crass bands where there was um, the, 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 there was less outrage there, and there was more like pain. pain and yeah. that that was really effect, and still I find it really effective. But I don't know very much about Nick Blinko, and I've never seen a photo of him or anything like that. I've, I've given him this wide berth in in my mind and allowed him to be. Um, this maniac scribbling in in a basement. Um. I, f- I think he's from what I gather. He's sort of for I don't know. From what I've heard, he was locked in locked up for a long time in a mental home. But I, f- I feel like he's probably been out for a little while now because there's a lot of projects and he's doing a lot more collaborations, kind of surfacing just a little bit. A lot of people. I know a, a gallery in LA that I'm friends with. They're always talking about how they're going to do a show with him. It never really eventuates. I mean, they've done some official merch, but, you know, like I think we all know people like this that are super sensitive and he would probably put his whole fucking soul into like an artwork or a song and he probably feels so damaged and worn out afterwards that he just has to step back for a couple of years, you know. And I felt like that after a project, you know, like... But for him, it'd be like times fucking a million, you know. If we could do like something to tie these two characters together, it would really just be that fanatical, obsessive devotion. You're talking about two very different um, reactions to the spirit of like punk and and and, mm. and what happened there. Like, and do you feel like you, in some sense, like how, how do you reconcile like having two such heavy influences, but both of them, I don't think, would get along in any respect, you know. No, they wouldn't, man. <laughs> Poor old Nick, could, I think, could just leave the room. <laughs> but saying that, I, you, when you think about it, they're both at the same level, but they're just their emotions are just wired differently. Whereas Sekevi is very vicious and hard and fierce. Nick is still Nick is like he's he's angry, but he's probably very timid. But they're both fanatical, and they're both all or nothing, and they're both just like. 100 miles an hour and i feel it's yeah i feel like they're probably the same people but just different maybe different emotions you know these kind of characters that we we know people like this you know Mm. not as iconic and established but the reason that we're attracted to punk is because i mean punk is such a huge world and it's 99% 99% of it's really insipid and boring shit, like really tedious and like flat and and kind of like nothing. Yeah. But those few characters like that, like they justify the entirety of human endeavors. Like they're mm. completely like put. They push. They push music forward, and they're still inspiring us today to kind of do that. Um, can you think of like anyone around you, like growing up, that you kind of saw that spirit in? Or can you, Mahmood? Like, it's it's not like a completely different world. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not like I was always, yeah, drawn to people that can zero in or zero, like close that intensity and funnel it into something, something that. Uh, you can look at or yeah i think about uh, in my world it's not so much an expression um it is if you think about it like in an abstract sense people being extremely violent to achieve an end yeah um like in that sense when i was when my thinking was completely different sure i was inspired by certain figures because they could just be extremely violent and achieve an end by any it was just like 
yeah, it's like something warlordish or yeah, something from like a bygone era where you would have these warrior type figures that could just you know run into a house and do whatever they want or just had no yeah could hold could hold court in a conversation but could also uh have that willingness to sacrifice their lives to achieve an end through violence it's pretty pretty fascinating thing yeah. to be inspired by and then you have other people who are who care so much about or don't give a fuck um, to the point where they're willing to get huge wax for being involved in a motorcycle club or something like they'll go and shoot a rival club member in a public place under cameras in in, there's there could be a hundred people around watching which literally happened Um, so that kind of thing is an extreme thing that I found inspiring is probably not the right word but it had an effect on me that someone would be so willing to do that to to and give away 25 years of their life just like that for a cause and a belief and i feel like that sacrificing for belief is something that's really uh, eroded with the internet um yeah it's interesting you say that because the a lot of people would posit that that the the internet really facilitated certain people to like be able to connect and and propose like I'm talking specifically about terrorists like there's like that network that the internet's given has allowed certain people that like probably wouldn't have been radicalized or probably wouldn't have gone that far uh, alone like in the 90s in their bedroom might have even got into like just like gangster rap or whatever yeah. and worn it like a a ranted t-shirt but now they they have access to other people with that level of intensity that they are prepared to like kind of step up in that respect so yeah i think there's there's definitely a tension there like certainly aesthetically like not many people are willing to go that far but there are like there are definitely people that are um the internet's facilitated them to step forward into like more levels of intensity and more levels of like communion with other people in that regard yeah I wonder how for some reason in my head that seems a bit different and I'm trying to figure out why that is like it feels like a bit more shallow Um, maybe it's because with Islamic terrorism for example um, a lot of these young kids who are inspired on the internet happens in like four months five months and then they just go and do it whereas in um the guys that I'm talking about lived by a code of ethics for like 25 years and then they'll do this express, they'll express, they'll do this heinous act of violence because it's like become this deep-seated philosophy that they've considered deeply and they believe. It is definitely complicated. Yeah, yeah. it's fucking complicated. <laughs> yeah. When I threw that out, I didn't, I didn't mean to, I mean, I went to the very top, didn't I? But um, I would... I, I, to, to speak of, like, how someone in four months can go from being, like, um, one person into another person, I would say that's, like, really common within when people get into punk. And, like, it's your level of intensity and, and kind of focus that can kind of be the difference between you becoming, like, a Nick Blinko or a Sakevi or a Spider, yeah. you know, like, that kind of... Like, can you remember that kind of phase, that really... That phase where you went from being, like, Jay... Yeah. To spider. Yeah, I think I feel like it was when I first moved out of home and I started to, you know, I, and I had nothing really left to lose. Not in a bad way. Like, it's not like I was down on my luck and I wanted to end it all. I had, like, the world at my fingers mm-hmm. and I wasn't living at home and I sort of had means to do anything I want, so to speak. You know what? I actually got a good story about... um do you remember the guitar player from Suicider? I don't remember, but I do remember Suicide. Tell, tell my mood about the band briefly, because it's such oh, a sick The band. first band I was in was called Suicider. but spelt like sewer, the you know, shit mm. inside of the drink. Anyway, we had this band. It was this crust band. I was like 18. We were all super young. And uh, it sounded kind of like Concrete Socks or Deviated Instinct. It was, it was you know, very crust. Anyway... Our, our guitarist, I don't want to say his name, he went from 
normal man to Sekevi within years. Like he, and I never knew this about him. He got really involved in politics. He moved to Barcelona for a bit, came back, went to a protest, threw a bag of marbles under a horse, tried to hit a cop with a hammer. Whoa. Yeah, he was like, he was going to do time for animal cruelty or some shit. But he's he's living, I think he was hiding out in Barcelona for a long time. Wow. And doing all sorts of stuff there. And I've I've seen him, like, since, I've seen him once in the last 20 years, just randomly on the street, like... It's like David Hicks, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, he's a perfect example of, like, you know, going... He was very extreme and very fanatical, not so much about punk music but about politics. Yeah. But the punk was just the catalyst that drew him towards it. Yeah. I can think of quite a few characters like that from yeah. when we were growing up. And yeah, I can, man. One thing I would kind of... The, probably one of the biggest things that I would say um, hasn't carried from that time was the um, the kind of the presence of anarchists, yeah, communists, like really left wing extremists, and then also like skinheads that would like you know say like really like basically you'd have like poles, like you'd have like I can't remember express express it moments in my mind of shows where everyone was hanging around like you I'm, I'm not talking about like racist skinheads i'm just talking about sketchy guys that you know say sexist things or something yeah. like that like you know just um like there would have been racist skinheads back then too. certainly but i'm oh, talking I'm, what i'm yeah. talking about more is those those shows where you go to and there'd be this massive tension in the air not it was skinheads would come to a show but it wouldn't be to watch bands i'm talking about like just that mix of really extreme poles of like really PC people and really un-PC people that would willingly together go into the same space, hang out and watch bands like together. That I'm fascinated that, by that. That does, definitely doesn't happen anymore. Like people don't no don't hang out together when no. like it's you're either woke or you're like not and you just like don't want to be around each other like there's like and there was a necessity to be, be in those spaces because that's where punk was happening. But now like what is what's the punk scene like now? Because my experience of it is it's extremely woke. It's ex- completely yeah, like yeah, that, absolutely. There's that, no mosaic yeah. of different opinions Definitely. anymore. So, yeah, but but also like it's it's really woke, but you don't have that kind of intensity of like the kind of anarchists or the, the like the communists or people that would come right. from straight up like committee meetings that spend their lives like in and out of meetings strategizing. Yeah, like, and and there's not that influence of like. Um, like politics as an actual life practice of like fighting against like the society system, like yeah, yeah, yeah that that kind of thing has gone in in a lot of respects and what what is really left is that kind of um this the, the sensitivity of, like of the of the woke kind of pc thing or whatever you want to call it like that's definitely like fun. what would happen if i went to a show and headbutted someone would would that be like it would definitely not. Would be I get charged? No, you. But you wouldn't be. Uh, it's just you just don't do that kind of thing. Like it's it's like yeah, that's whack. Is, is that not whack that it, that it's infected the um the scene or or has the scene evolved in a, in a quite organic and beautiful way to to appreciate? Because I I have always been one to enjoy the friction and in the friction of ideas and even though they're fucked, I feel like that's how we figure figure things out. And that's what makes certain certain scenes interesting is that, is that they're dynamic and they're a bit dangerous and they're a bit fucked. And, they're, and, and it's this life thing because life is a bit dangerous and fucked. And, yeah, I don't know. Well, there, there's definitely friction yeah. and it still exists. And I'm not trying to say it's, like, watered down or, like, you know, punk is, is in Melbourne in many respects, like, a lot of good bands and stuff. But I'm talking, yeah, that kind of friction do- doesn't exist as far as I've seen from the shows I've been no. to, where people would actually s- s- give you leaflets about. That was big. Yeah. Yeah, that you, was big. You, you have tables. a leaflet about vivisection or something. Yeah. Like that. I haven't seen that happen for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe because back then it was still a kind of a new entity. You know, it was. Like people like knew, oh, there's some bands playing down the show. I don't know what it is, though. Some rock bands. Like just like. Like Joe, that just finished his job, like he's a plumber or some shit, just went in for a beer and he's like, I might chill his bands out. Like, but now everyone knows what it's all about, you know, to a degree. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, 
I, I'm not particularly fond of that era at all. <laughs> like, I, like when I look back, I like wasted many, many hours watching shitty bands in like rooms with that sound like shit. But that that sense of friction that you're talking about, mm. I've mm. definitely sought that elsewhere. So like I'll go to see. And it doesn't really happen very often, but I'll go to see someone do a talk, for example, that Tarkovsky talk that we went to see from mm. our friend Val. And um, you, you kind of look forward to that anxiety happen uh, when the question time comes and people kind of asking this um, mad Russian genius questions about Tarkovsky and you hope that, like, you, you can see that there's, like, like, people with hard principles in the room and hard beliefs that are prepared to, like, argue and fight for it. So I think I just seek that stuff elsewhere, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like everything is so polarized now, um, and it's like the it's very rare that those opinions um, intersect yeah. or like come together or cross paths. I, I don't know where that happens. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, whereas in back then in subcultures it happened all the time. Um, yeah, but now I don't know. I don't know where that happens. Like, where do where do people's belief systems cross cross paths in an, in an interesting way? And I think music's a really fucking interesting way to be exploring, yeah, belief systems and and um, challenging belief systems and yeah. You know, I think I was talking to Mahmoud about this outside. Um, I think the way I'm the reason I'm like this is because I recently got the, I see a shrink. Well, I did. I just I recently walked out. That's a whole another story. But she seems to think that I have severe ADD, and I told my mom, and my mom said, "Oh yeah, I thought you did." I was like, "Why didn't you do anything?" But I sort of I like. I mean, it's not a bad thing, and I feel like it's working for me. And I think this is why that I can't. You know, like if I'm put making a, like some artwork or a record, I, was, I can't stop thinking about it. Even during this interview, I've been thinking about all this stuff. And I, I can't switch off. And it's sort of like I lay in bed even thinking about it, even watching TV with Tessa. And she's like, oh, this is, you know, laughing at And sometimes I can't even pay attention. I just laugh with her. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a funny part of TV. <laughs> but it, I think that's why. I get in a lot of trouble for that exact reason. Oh, yeah. I'm just drifting off into my head thinking about what I'm writing or some or like a very particular sentence. And it will just suddenly, as I'm driving or as we're having dinner it'll just impose itself on me and i can't shake it and i have to correct it like in that instance or like a better way to say that sentence will just infect my brain and i fucking cannot for the life of me stop myself from that's doing one that. major reason why i had to pull back from writing because i was doing it so much and mm. i would have that exact same thing like a, a word like I'd read a document, like delete a bunch of stuff and then go away and then like a single word would like come into my head and I'd be like bailing on a show to go home to like go to my computer and, and delete that word. Wow. I'd just like completely fixated um, and, and when, I'm, when, my, when I'm writing at my best, like when I'm doing a really good job and I'm, I'm, I'm really flowing quite well, um, it's totally fine. But then like when I get in that headspace, I'll like delete months of work i've like written so much stuff that i've just like deleted really over one word that i just couldn't reconcile with the whole thing it just like ruined everything for me yeah does does that happen in music like that obsession to to fix a certain part or a lyric or or something that just keeps you up at night well i I've, i have a feeling that we can tie this back in with sagevi quite well because i feel like they his obsessive kind of like nature like really slowed that band down towards the end and kind of i don't really know too much about it but um that kind of almost like axel rose like um stri striving for the making oh, yeah. the per perfect per perfect record and then it just never happening um do you know anything about that like what basically what happened to gizm oh uh, well i think the perform the the man lp i think they, they, he spent so long building it, and I think I don't think at the time it was received very well by the public. I know Parshead made this poster for it that was only available if you mail ordered it, but the the numbers were so low. I don't think it even went through or something. But there are copies of the poster through this record store. I think it kind of flopped pretty hard, 
um, and I think I, I think it was also probably the guitarist's influence. Randy, he's a bit of a rock and roll guy. One thing I, d- I just wanted to kind of hear from you is basically what's been your routine to keep your yourself like going through all this like few months. Like I don't like talking about COVID oh, yeah. very much with people, but being in Melbourne, like this is something that is going to have an effect on us for years. Like what, yeah. that that time that we spent. How did you get through it? Just gives you gives your routine. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a, I used to write this routine the night before, so I didn't wake up and play Angry Birds on my phone because I've been obsessed with that since I got sober, and I can't stop thinking about that as well. I, became, I came second in the world tournament about five times now. <laughs> I can't help it, man. <laughs> all right, all right. So I used to um, I used to have a routine like I'd wake up, have a coffee, pretend to get dressed for work, take the dogs for a walk, and then. At about 10 o'clock, start working on whatever it is and then have a lunch at one and then work a little more and then do some house stuff, you know. But I just, I think it was just vital that I had a timetable each day. Like I need some kind of structure in my life, some kind of rules, or I'd just get carried away on one thing, you know. Litmus Media.